Song of Solomon chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 17 tonight, 9 through 17. We left off last time with the Shulamite woman, Solomon's bride. Um, she, was, she was rejoicing because he, Solomon, has chosen her to be his bride as Jesus Christ has chosen us to be his bride. And she repeats what she said about his love being better than wine in chapter 1, verse 3. But then she suddenly feels unworthy of such an honor to be his bride. And she describes herself in verse 5 as dark but still lovely. You see, she had been tanned by the hot sun, you know, in the eastern sun as she worked for her brothers in the vineyard. And she kept their vineyards, you know, healthy. And she tended to their vineyards, her brother's vineyards, but she neglected to take care of her own vineyard, which is speaking of herself. And in that day, to be, to be tanned, which, you know, we have tanning salons there because everybody wants to tan, you know, and, and we go to the beach and get tans. But in that day, you, you, they recognized that you were, you worked, you know, like, like the, the common folk out in the, in the vineyards, and the more well-to-do, you know, they were, their skin was still fair and light, and, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't tanned. So she felt like, you know, she was less than others. And she started to feel down on herself for her, for her lover Solomon. So, uh, you know, she even said that, that she felt that she looked like the tents of Kedar, which were made out of black's, black goat's hair. But though she was feeling down on herself, and she's speaking out how she feels down on herself, and... And, and less than perfect and didn't like the way she looked, Solomon now makes her feel secure when she was in his presence. And she longed to be with him, even at the risk of being thought of as a prostitute. Now here in verses 9 through 17, we see the admiration and respect that they had for each other. Two very important characteristics of any relationship admiration and respect and we see the one the admiration and respect that they had for each other so let's begin now in verses 9 and 10 and Solomon is speaking in these two verses and we see they you know, we switch off in the dialogue but Solomon is the one who's speaking now in verses 9 and 10 listen to what he says and again He's, he's lifting her up now, and then I'll explain what it is he's saying. He tells her, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. My filly, he calls her. He says, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. In other words, he's telling her, you're as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. Now, in Solomon's day, the horse was the companion of kings. You know, I don't know how that would go over today. You, you know, you tell the one that you love, hey, baby, you remind me of my favorite horse. Okay, you know. In that day, Solomon got game. He knows what he's talking about, you know. He, he's saying all the right things. Solomon loved horses, especially those from Egypt. Eventually, he had a stable of 12,000 horses with 1,400 chariots. 
Solomon wouldn't allow her to say that she was unworthy or ugly because of the tan that she felt made her ugly. He wouldn't stand for that. In verses 9 through 11, he admires her beauty and he lets her know that she's beautiful and he calls her my love. Now, this is another term. The word love here, this is another term for love in the book of Song of Solomon. It's the rarer meaning of the word love. It means dear companion. He's calling her his dear companion. He's assuring her of his love for her and, and that he, he, she's beautiful to him. And the term my love is used only once outside of the Song of Solomon in Judges 11.37 where it's translated fellow or my companions. It literally means my friend. And Solomon, I believe, uses the word my companion three times in describing a marriage relationship. And that's what a husband and wife are to be. They are to be companions. In Genesis 2.24, the Lord says, they shall become one flesh. One flesh. And in many ways, they, would be, they will become one flesh. Now, man has tried to write what, you know, explain what that means. They've tried to define it, but they can't. Why? Because it's something that God does. It's something that God does between a husband and wife when he makes them one flesh. One of those ways is best of friends. All right? Your companion in life. Not like one of your old buddies from back in the day, but something much closer than that. In Genesis 2.24, God showed the importance of that relationship. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. That means permanently glued. That means joined to his wife. And the word leave symbolizes severance. And, and what was the, what's the strongest bond, the strongest relationship of a, of, a, of a child before marriage? It's their father and mother. It's their parents. But God's word says they shall leave their father and mother and be joined to his wife. That doesn't mean that they're to abandon their parents. What it means is that their wife, the husband's wife, is to be top priority in their life. And a lot of problems with marriage because, you know, the guy thinks, well, you know, he, he still has the right to go out with his buddies, you know, during the week or, or you know, hang out with them. And, and, hey, man, these are my friends. And, you know, when you got married, she becomes the priority. And that's the importance of understanding the principle of severance. Now, the Shulamite woman, Solomon's bride, is, is her friend's, is her lover's friend or companion. And it's definitely a word signifying affection like girlfriend. It suggests a very special relationship. You know, she's just not another girl. Or she's not just some conquest to be shown off to everybody and, and to improve his own status, to make himself look good. Nor is she just a, a boring kind of living doll who flatters and praises him in public. You know, she's not there to soothe his, his bruised ego when they're alone. You know, her life doesn't pitifully revol revolve around him and his career and all that he wants. His life, his profession, his social standing, and his whole, you know, well-being. She is a girl in her own right, with her own mind, not some yes girl. She knows her man. She can hold her own when they're around other people. She's his friend. They're companions. They are one together. They have common interests. They also have their own interests. And they're able to give each other the space to develop their own interests without making one, without thinking, oh, you don't love me. Because, you know, they're, they're not there every moment of the day. They don't give them that room to go and, and that space to develop their own interests and talents. 
They can encourage each other in their own separate pursuits. That is, they can help each other in, in what they're, they're wanting to do. Or, you know, as a husband, you are to help or encourage her, your wife, to develop the ta talents that God has given her. And they can be proud of each other's accomplishments, not envious. You know, they are two distinct personalities, but with each different kinds of needs. Emotionally, socially, physically, intellectually, psycholo psychologically. And I think we forget that. Or we really don't even think about it at all. You see, when you get married, and I, I mentioned this last week, it, when you get married, it doesn't change the person you married, you're married to. We think maybe times that, well, you know, after we get married, you know, I'll tell them, hey, you know, don't do this, and I don't like that, and, you know, and, and we, we, you know, we come home, and we get out of the bridal clothes, the next thing, we look like a lion trainer, we got the whip and the chair, and okay, now, you're going to do it this way. It doesn't work that way, and that's where the problems begin. You know, it doesn't change the person you're married. If, if they have an anger problem, guess what? You marry an anger problem. If they're unkind, you marry their unkindness. If they're lazy, you marry their laziness. You don't marry, a, and, I, and this speaks of husband and wife, either one. You don't marry a person, you marry a character. So it's important to understand that. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, when I used to uh, do a lot of premarital counseling, I talked to one or the other and said, well, yeah, I really don't like this about my spouse. I go, well, there's only two things you can do. Don't get married or you marry the person knowing that. Plain and simple. Because if you marry that person knowing this, that you don't like about them, you did it knowing that this was what they were like. You know, so you either, you know, pray for that person to change if you can't, you know, live with that, or, you know, you, 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 you don't get married because all it's going to do is just cause problems later on. You know, marry, marry him knowing this, but you can't nag him about the bad habit or whatever it is. You know, you either, like I said, don't get married or you, you choose to quit or, and move on, your, move on yourself. Knowing this, all right, knowing each other and knowing what God's word says about marriage, you know, it enables you to be companions. Marriage is described as a companionship. Yeah, Proverbs 2.17, Malachi 2.14, and Genesis 2.23. The couple are not just choking the life out of each other, but they are giving each other room to grow. And when we recognize how different they are, you know, we don't, we don't try to force each other into our own molds, you know, or have unrealistic expectations of the other person. And that is a real problem in many relationships, unrealistic expectations. When, uh, when, Rachel, couldn't see, when Rachel couldn't have children, Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 30. Of the, it says, now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, that's when she saw that she couldn't give Jacob any children, it says Rachel envied her sister, which was Leah. Now the word envied means jealousy. So she was jealous of her sister Leah because she had children. And, and Rachel said to her husband Jacob, uh, give me children or else I die. Now you can hear her frustration. And here's Jacob's answer to his wife, Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? 
you can read between the lines. She's, she's jealous of her sister. She wants children. And in that day, it was, it was, a, it was a disgrace or, you know, it just wasn't a, a, a good thing not to have children. And, and she's telling Jacob with frustration, you know what, you know, give me children or I'm going to die. And then he's frustrated because it, it's not up to him. He says, you know, hey, am I in the place of God? And he says, he's the one who's withheld the children from you. And then when when you don't recognize the unrealistic uh, uh, expectation, they take it even further, and this is where they mess up. Rachel Rachel tells her husband Jacob, in frustration, go into my maid Bilhah and sleep with her, and she will bear children for you, and through her I can have a family. So notice the ball, the snowballs, you know, there's frustration, there's envy, there's jealousy. They begin to do things that they shouldn't do because of unrealistic expectations. The husband and wife support each other when necessary, but they don't serve as crutches for each other. Their togetherness isn't about two self-centered, egotistical individuals. It's not all about me but a stress-free unity of two distinct and yet at the same time very different personalities. For example, take, let's say I have two different pieces of clay in my hand, or two different colored pieces of clay. Then I press them together and I mold them together and I shape them together into one lump of clay. Now from far away, it looks like one color. But the closer you look, you will see it's made out of two different colors and I'm sure you've all heard the expression oh they're like two peas in a pod well I heard somebody say well they're not like two peas in a pod because that makes for boredom and they become stubborn or unadventurous and they don't like change and and you know and and again as I said before God allows those differences in in each spouse to to help you to grow and I know in the early years of Kathy and I marriage you know I I I had my mindset, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do it because I just don't like it. Never tried it. It's weird, it was all food. I don't know why. Chinese food, nope, I don't like it. You ever tried it? Nope, I just don't like it. And she liked it. And so God had to get through, well, you know what, she's not able to eat the stuff she liked because I don't like it. And that wasn't right. Now, like Chinese food, sushi, uh, you know, and, and, and things that I never liked before. But again, it's because, you know, Kathy, she's helped me to, to move beyond my, my stubbornness and say, nope, like a little, little kid with a baby food, nope, I'm not going to eat it. But now I love it. And, and again, Kathy's an adventure. I'm a creature of habit, a very, very different in our personalities. But you see, it's their differences that encourages growth, you know, it, 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 again, and I said the last week, someone once said that if both of you are the same, then one of you wouldn't be necessary. You know, Solomon and, and Shulamite and, and most of their separate worlds make for growth and for experience in er, areas that each would have been unaware of if they hadn't ventured out of their own, you know, isolated, separate little world. You learn from each other's strengths and weaknesses. One of the major statements that Solomon made to his beloved here was, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. 
Now, again, like I said a minute ago, those might not be the most romantic words you ever heard. You know, baby, hey, you remind me of my favorite horse. But in that culture, you can see what he was saying. And it reminded me of my grandson. I have this video. It, it is so cute. My grandson Noah was about two years old. He loves, at that time, he loved garbage trucks. When, he would, when Kathy would be babysitting him and the garbage truck would come and they're dumping, he'd go to the window, he'd watch. Would just, it was just, he had garbage trucks, you know, to play with. Uh, Kathy took him out one time to take a picture with the man driving the truck. And there he is by the truck. And he says, he's proud as can be. He loves garbage trucks. He's in a restaurant with Natalie and her dad. Two years old, over two years old. And he sees this waitress. And at two years old, he thinks she's cute. <laughs> Natalie goes, Noah, is she cute? Yeah. And he's doing it like this, like he's all you know, nervous and kind of stuff. And Albert goes, where is she? And he goes, he's looking over there. And he goes, there she is. She's on the way. And Natalie goes, do you think she's cute? She's a garbage truck. <laughs> it's what, it's what, what Solomon is saying here. She's like the most beautiful filly among Pharaoh's horses. And in his mind, man, she's a garbage truck. He loves garbage trucks. And Natalie kind of chuckled and had to put it over, because I'm sure the girl wouldn't have, the waitress wouldn't have thought that was cute. But in Noah's mind, she was, she was beautiful. She was, she was everything to him. But again... We have to look at Solomon's time, the culture. The pharaohs, the pharaohs always had white horses. The horse was colorfully decorated with ribbons and other decorations. Wall paintings from the tombs of Egypt showed pharaohs' horses with feathered headdresses, studded leather halters and bridles, magnificently decorated with drapes and beads. You could see a white horse way off in the distance so that great honor could be prepared for the pharaoh ahead of time before he arrives. Pharaoh's white horse was considered to be almost like a god itself. And the horses were considered valuable property of the pharaoh. White horses were reserved only for the pharaohs. So you see, when you look at the culture and the, what it, the significance of the horses of a pharaoh, what Solomon was saying to the woman he adored is that he saw her as extremely beautiful, valuable, rare, unique, one-of-a-kind, very special. She was worth more than any amount of money. See, see, he was assuring her again of her beauty and her worth. When you really respect a person you love, you should have the same feeling. You consider that person to be very special and valuable beyond measure. Men need to build up the, women they, the woman that they love. You can shower them with kindness, a simple please, and, and thank you is important. And again, kindness is a sign of respect. And, and a, a lot of husbands and wives don't respect each other because they've gotten used to each other. And a lack of kindness can kill a relationship. Verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Solomon is complimenting her face here. He says how lovely your cheeks are. Your earrings, they set them afire. How lovely is your neck enhanced by a string of jewels. 
He says her cheeks are enhanced by her earrings. Her neck is decorated by the strings of brightly colored beads that she's wearing. His only intention here is to make her feel even more royal. He's going to make her some gold earrings and some silver beads. You see, he wants her to be seen at her best. Her beauty is enhanced by the jewelry that she wears. Not too much so that she's gaudy, but just enough to make her sparkle. Now, <clears throat> to get the full picture of what Solomon is saying here, he said, he said her, that, that his beloved, all right, her beloved, Solomon, saying that, <clears throat> saying that the effect <clears throat> his beloved has on him is the same as when a pharaoh's white horse is seen in all of its beauty. He said that's the effect that she had on him. He's saying that his beloved sends him into a frenzy of desire. One, interp one interpretation says it like this, you, my love, excite men like a mare excites the stallions of Pharaoh's chariots. The bride is the church and the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. Does he find any beauty in the church? He found all of us lost sinners. The Shulamite girl had a natural beauty even though it had, it had been neglected. But you see, we don't even have that. You see, there's nothing about us that could be appealing to Jesus. In other words, we, we, we can't bring him anything that he needs. We have nothing that he needs. The answer to why he loves us and why we appeal to him is totally his love, his grace for us. He provides everything for us. Verse 11. Now, the daughters of Jerusalem are going to respond here in verse 11. The daughters of Jerusalem were the attendants to the Shulamite woman. It says in verse 11, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. These are the earrings here. The daughter, we will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. These are kind words, uh, from the, um, these are kind words from the women of the court to the Shulamite woman. The kindness is remarkable because... Each of these women may have hoped to be chosen themselves by the king, by Solomon, as verse 3 indicates. This is a picture of what our heavenly bridegroom will do for believers. And today, our Lord Jesus, his word, in his word, he beautifies his bride. We see it in Ephesians 5, 23 through 25. It makes that clear. Jesus loved the church, it says that he, that so much that he gave himself for her, speaking of the church. He did it so that he might sanctify her and cleanse her, that is the church, with the washing of water by the word. He did it, he, he did this so that it says he might present the church, us, to himself, a glorious church without spot or any wrinkle, but holy, set apart for him and without blemish. Christ is going to do that for us one day. Verses 12 through 14. Now the Shulamite woman, woman is speaking now in these verses, in 12 through 14. This is what it says. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is, is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. So again, the Shulamite woman is the one speaking here now about her, her man, Solomon. When it speaks about his table, it's speaking about the setting for the wedding banquet. 
In other words, while the king is away at his banquet table, notice she says, she calls him my spikenard. Okay? It was her name of endearment for her king. She calls him my spikenard. Now, spikenard was a fragrant oil that was extracted from a plant that grew in eastern, eastern India. And it was a rare and expensive perfume. Now, it was like the perfume that, remember, Mary gave Jesus as her love gift just before he was crucified. Remember when she broke the alabaster box, what the scripture says, that the fragrance just permeated through the whole house. You could smell the fragrance of that perfume throughout the house. The Shulamite calls her beloved Solomon, my spikenard. In other words, her whole soul was filled and alive with the fragrance of love. Now, as we know, perfume or cologne, it identifies it kind of advertises who that person is. You can tell when someone is wearing perfume or cologne when they enter the room without even looking up. It may be a perfume and it's, or a cologne. It, it identifies with that person. Oh, they, that's them because they always wear that kind. We know who it is. Not only that, a certain fragrance will say or will stay in the memory for a long time. And so by calling him, by her calling him my spikenard, the Shulamite woman tells her beloved that she couldn't forget him even if she tried. She expresses her love for him in two ways. First, by saying that he's like a bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. Myrrh was a sweet-smelling perfume like spikenard, all right? The myrrh spoke to the Shulamite woman about her beloved. She would carry some of it in a little pouch around her neck that laid between her breasts, that is, on her chest, close to her heart when she went to bed at night. Even in her sleep, she wanted to be reminded of him and how she wanted to be close to him. That little pouch of myrrh laying on her chest constantly reminded her of the hope of marrying him and the closeness and closest of intimacy. In verse 15, it says he was also like a cluster of henna blooms or blossoms in En Gedi. Now, En Gedi was an oasis on the western boundary of the Dead Sea, right on the edge of the wilderness. It was a wild and, and barren area. It was full of cliffs, rocks, and caves. And the caves of En Gedi, if you remember, it was where, where David hid from Saul. And Saul you know, went in, in, in some of those caves, and he spent the night in those caves, and David was hiding in those caves from Saul. But there was a spring that, would come out, that came out of the mountains about 6,000 feet above uh, sea level, enabling the vineyards to grow there. So the henna blossoms of En Gedi would symbolize beauty where you would expect barrenness. So see... He was like the lingering fragrance of expensive perfume to her. There was something about him that was unforgettably sweet. What she's saying here is, all I can see, Solomon, is you in my mind. I can feel your presence with me. You're all that I dream about. And for the believer, the bundle of myrrh represents Jesus. Remember, myrrh was one of the gifts that were brought by one of the wise men for baby Jesus at the manger. And remember when Jesus died, Joseph and Nicodemus brought myrrh to put on his body. 
So the myrrh speaks of his entire life, Christ's entire life from birth to death because they brought it to him at the manger when he was born and they brought it to him to, to, to put on his body when he died. So again, the myrrh, it speaks of, of Jesus' entire life from birth to death. Jesus, Jesus should lie heavy upon our breast and lie heavy upon our heart when we go to bed at night. When you wake up during the night, what do you think about? You see, we have a great picture here with the Shulamite woman. We need to be like her. She was a woman who rejoiced in her hope. We should rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We need to hold close to our heart the wonderful works and the wonderful memories that we have of our Lord Jesus. When you wake up in the morning, what are your first thoughts of the day? We read in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Psalm 1-2, the psalmist says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Do we meditate upon the Lord? Do we think about the Lord all day and all night? This you can be sure of. A woman does not have pleasant dreams about a man who's unkind to her or doesn't respect her. Respect leaves them both wanting to spend more time with each other. And if you spend less time with a person that you're dating and your respect decreases or you start feeling restricted so that you don't feel to, uh, free to be yourself, get out of the relationship. And obviously I'm talking about those that are you know, looking to be married or, or you know, uh, planning to, you know, to get married because this isn't the right person for you. Or, and, and I, I, used, I used to see this many times, if, you know, if, if you're dating somebody for, se for several years and they haven't asked you to marry you, they haven't set a date, get out of that relationship. You know, and, and, and especially a lot of times they're living together. Well, you know, the, the, the guy's receiving the benefits of marriage without the commitment. And many times the, the woman would say, you know, I, we, you know, it's not working. You know, we, we've been together so many years and we've been living together. And I go, if he doesn't, if he's not talking about marrying you or setting a date, you know what? You need to leave. You have no commitment to him. You know, it's not the right person for you. Verses 15 through 17. And now, uh, in verses 15 through 17, we see the beloved. Solomon speaks in verse 15, and the Shulamite woman speaks in verses 16 and 17. The king and the Shulamite are now going to talk to each other. Look at verse uh, 15 through 17. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Now the Shulamite responds to him. Beloved, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. And then she says in verse 17, The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. So they tell each other of the beauty that they see in each other. He thinks of her. And then she thinks of him. And then he thinks of her again. He tells her how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. He says, your eyes are like doves. He thinks of her, and all he can think of is peace. She thinks of him, and she's in heaven. He thinks of her once more, and purity sums up what he sees in her. 
First, he tells her here in verse 16 that she has eyes like a dove. A dove, remember, is the symbol of peace. It was a dove that brought back an olive leaf to Noah, being a sign that God's wrath was over and the earth was at peace once more. According to Jewish law, the dove was a clean bird and it could be used for sacrifice. It has a good homing instinct. The dove is used in the Bible as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So when Solomon looked at her, at his beloved, this is what he saw. He saw a gentle, harmless, home-loving, clean, sacrificial kind of person who showed the characteristics that we see in the Holy Spirit. He saw all of this in her eyes when he looked at her. And this is what Jesus wants to see in us. He wants to see all of us. He wants to see all of the wonders and grace of the Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit. Do our eyes look at Him with wonder? The bridegroom has told the bride how wonderful she is. And now she turns around and he says, she says the very same thing to him. Notice in verses 16 through 17 again. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. She tells him, you're so handsome, my love. You're pleasing beyond words. She says, the soft grass is our bed. Fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house and pleasant smelling firs are the rafters. When the Shulamite woman thinks of him, she's thinking, she thinks of ecstasy. You're so handsome, my love. Pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed. She was looking ahead to that day when they would be married and she imagined going to some secret place, some shady forest meadow where they would have their honeymoon. She thought it would be like heaven being alone with him in this beautiful place that she, she, she pictured in her mind. Her thoughts were full of, of these ideas. And then she said in verse 17, fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house and pleasant smelling firs are the rafters. In other words, this is how she pictured this wonderful place. She pictured, pictured it like a primitive paradise, like the beautiful Garden of Eden. It wasn't a fancy place. It was made out of the most beautiful materials. It was all trimmed out in gold and, and decorated with costly furniture and silk curtains and all. But the place that she was thinking of, to her, it was a paradise. It was a paradise to her, like the Garden of Eden that, that God had made for Adam and Eve, where they could consummate their love for each other. It would be heaven to her. Why? Because they would both be there. And that's really the way love should be. You shouldn't need the fancy and the expensive and the contemporary material things to enjoy each other. And that's the way it should be for the church with her bridegroom. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. See, Paul, and we see it two times, the word learned. I learned this. I learned this. That whatever state I'm in, whether I have little or I have a lot, I've learned to be content. And see, in Paul's ability to be content with whatever state he was in, because all the resources he needed to live a joyful life came from within. 
They weren't based on his environment. They weren't based on what he had or what he didn't have. See, I don't need anything this world has to offer. Everything that I need is, is, is inward in the person of Jesus Christ because he satisfies to the fullest. In 1 Timothy 1, 6, 8, Paul said, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So these two lovers, Solomon and the Shunammite, they admire each other's beauty. They're not just flattering each other. They're giving each other heartfelt approval. The mental and emotional effects of praise and encouragement. And they do a person a lot of good. They are beneficial to our well-being. So in closing, doesn't it make you feel good when your spouse gives you a compliment? It makes you feel important. It makes you feel valuable. It makes you feel wanted. It makes you feel noticed. This is important in all relationships. And it gives us that boost we need when maybe we're feeling ugly, like the Shulamite woman. So many husbands and wives, you know, today, a lot of, they don't make each other feel valuable. Our Jesus, our bridegroom, makes us feel valuable. And he makes us feel important to him. He assures us. He affirms us. And we read that in Psalm 139, verse 15 through uh, 18. The psalmist said, For you, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. He said, My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious also your thoughts to me. Oh God, how great is the sum of them. That is the thoughts that he has for us. He said, if I should count them, the thoughts that he has for us, they would be more than the number of the sand on the sea. And when I, am, when I awake, I am still with you. Again, showing the love that God has for us. The wonder that we are to him. But more, the wonder that he, are to us, that he is to us. And Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Deuteronomy 23, 5 said, the Lord your God loves you. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. And then in John 14, 2 through 3, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Why? That we may be there together forever. That's the love of the bridegroom for his church, the bride. He loves us. He reassures us. He's provided everything that we need. And one day, he's going to finalize it all. That we may be together with him forever. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful this beautiful section of scripture, Lord. And Father, may we take it to heart, Lord. Father, may we see how you love us, God. Help us to love you that way in return, Lord. Father, though we don't have anything that's becoming of ourselves, Paul said that we've all 
gone our separate way, that none has done good. Not very appealing. But yet you love us anyway because of who you are. And Father, we thank you for that. So Lord, we, we help us, God, to love you as you loved us. Father, we thank you. May you give us the power of your spirit. God, will you help us to be sensitive to these things. And that, Father, that we would glorify you. That we would reflect that relationship of the bridegroom to his bride, Christ in the church. That we would honor you in our lives, God. And, Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.